add my welcome to the Common Lodge annual debate on challenges for democracy in digital age. This debate actually launches our new theme, inclusion and opportunity. Because over the coming months, we will be examining and exploring themes such as how digital technology can provide opportunities for inclusion for all, how we can empower the young to respond to unprecedented disruption, how changing beliefs, values, and expectations can be harnessed to build inclusive and cohesive societies. In his book, Look Where We're Going, Lord Howell states that technology has made much of our conventional ways of working obsolete and that we need new types of leadership. He argues that old ideas of democracy have been overtaken and that while we wrestle with issues we just face today, much bigger forces are at work which are shaping our lives in the future. He further argues that the populist impulse, now vastly magnified by technology, has to be handled, not succumbed to. Faith has to be restored in democracy. To meet doubts both deep within society and about the purpose and direction of society requires rethinking and new approaches. He says that in a puzzled world, we need leaders who do not just expound economic theology, but work for renewal of moral framework. He quotes Yuval Nova Harari, who says, how do we live in an age of bewilderment where all stories have collapsed and no new story has yet emerged to replace them? I think that's a very good question. Cumberland Lodge, given its purpose, as you heard from the Chief Executive at Newell, is an impartial and safe place to explore these issues and provide opportunities to the young and potential leaders of tomorrow to rethink and explore new innovative ways of embracing these challenges and equipping them to respond creatively and positively. I'm therefore delighted that Cumberland Lodge and Good Enough College have come together to provide an opportunity for us to discuss these issues. This evening, we have three panelists, Lord Howell of Guildford, who is an esteemed colleague of mine in the House of Lords. Lord Howell's very distinguished political career spans over four decades, including being a member of Mrs. Thatcher's first cabinet. And until recently, he chaired the House of Lords International Committee. He is also an economic consultant and an author he is passionate about the Commonwealth because when he was the Minister of the Foreign Office, he said he put C back into the FCA. Mm. Lord Howell will discuss the themes in his book and specifically focus on how to safeguard democracy in a digital age while developing a new sense of purpose and direction with moral framework. <laughs> Dr. Catherine Dommert a senior lecturer and director of the Crick Centre for Public Understanding and Politics at the University of Sheffield, and Marnie Howell, a student representative of Goodenough College and from the International Department of International Relations and Department of London School of Economics, will respond. Both of them have a very distinguished career, and I was quite impressed to see read their CVs, because, and I'm very grateful for, for agreeing to be the respondents of this evening's discussion. At the end of this, their, their presentations, there will be an opportunity for questions and comments from the audience. So without much ado, I'm now going to ask Lord Howell to make his comments. David. Thank you so much. Thank you, Asha. Um, 
thank you Cumberland Lodge, and thank you Goodhart College and members um, for giving me such a, a nice and honored platform to share some thoughts with you this evening. Um, um, Thank you all for being here and coming to join in our discussions. Um, I've been racking my brains to think of the best way of, of um, encapsulating the message of, um, my, of the book that uh, our show has referred to, um, and to try and get, get over to some sense of how we uh, move towards a more orderly management of this very disordered world. And again, there was also something that sounds quite obvious to many of you, but comes as a surprise to many. We're not just going to turn the clock back to where it was before. We're not just passing through a period of disruption, after which it'll all be back to normal. There isn't any return to normalcy at all. We're facing completely new conditions in governance, in the pattern of international relations, in the way we conduct our society, in our business, and our affairs. And I think that has to be a starting point. It's certainly a starting point in my book. And it's the message I really want to share with you most strongly this evening. I'm getting over. I thought of waving at you. The other meeting, I've waved at, waved at people, the daily newspapers, which you'll find full of um, uh, references to the new digital age we now live in and to the disruption it's causing and to um, Various. I noticed last week the Financial Times, usually a very sober and distinguished paper, um, its editorial board had all come together and decided that um, America, the United States of America, was no longer a reliable ally. Now that sounds maybe sound banal to you, but obviously, and many people say it's pretty obvious that things have changed and the world of the past 70 years since the Second World War, with America being our closest ally and so on, was part of the Western world order, has moved on. But uh, anyway, the Financial Times and all their wisdom have arrived at the same point. That, that makes a message slightly, but I think there's a better way of bringing to you the point I'm trying to make, and that is that if you look around the world, there are riots and protests Everywhere, I mean, scroll through your browser, some of you, and you'll be, if you put riots and protests, and you'll be astonished to find that in almost every capital of the world, there are riots going on, many of them very, very violent indeed. I was just looking through them the other evening Santiago, Khartoum, Baghdad, Algiers, Tunis, Hong Kong, Rome, Paris, London, here yeah, we've had our share, and so on, Lebanon, even in Moscow, and Astonishingly, a week ago, the main, the New York Times was carrying a headline saying that the U.S. looking forward to the, or looking for the election of a president next year, should expect major riots and protests in the coming months. This is really a really disordered and disturbing world. And, and if you think about it, there are very few governments around the world that are not under enormous pressure. Um, some of them evaporating altogether, but uh, all faced with tremendous challenges to survive. Governments and the processes of governance are all under attack, almost everywhere. Now, the thing that in a way disappoints and astonishes me is how shallow the argumentation and analysis is of why this should be so. Why? 
why are we, are we moved into this uh, disruptive and disorganized age? The, the answers are very, very feeble indeed. Most the media just report what is without ever examining why. I turned when I was writing this book to the um, uh, some of the great professions to see if they were going more deeply into the reasons for this modern disruptive age. Um, and I went particularly to the historians. And I'm afraid I was disappointed. We take in my household a book called, a really superb magazine called History Today, that strongly recommend. And they have at the beginning of each month four great historic historian gurus, leading historians, to um, analyze the great questions of the day. Last month they had, um, is, uh, uh, has democracy had its day? Um, tremendously learned analysis, but to my amazement, not a single mention of the fact that connectivity of the digital revolution and the communications technology have transformed the entire process of international relations and indeed of domestic relations and governments as well. Not mention. So then I was disappointed with those. Then this this year, this month, the same, and perhaps a different set of historians tackled the question of what keeps nations together. And they decided as a group that their job as historians was to deem myth, remove the mythology from any national stories, as though this was going to be the answer to the question of disruption, uncertainty, and confusion. Completely the opposite, in my view, of what is necessary, which is that if nations and societies are going to hold together, there must be some kind of story. There must be a narrative. There must be some kind of purpose and direction. Um, actually, you mentioned uh, uh, you have uh, Noah Hirari and his marvelous books, Sapiens and Hamadeus, where he comes to lose gloomy conclusion that we may be moving into a sort of nihilist area where there isn't a story, there isn't a faith. The isms have failed in the 20th century. They either went mad, like Nazism and communism, um, or even the liberalism itself is under intense attack and in a state of confusion. I, I don't accept that, Bloom. Uh, I think that it's possible to weave together some kind of ordered story in the future. My book tries to do it. But the question, you know, to, to diagnose, you've got to have no cause. Any doctor will tell you that. It's no good just starting from where we are. We have to try and understand why the splintering, why the attacks on the rule-based order, why this enormous shift to Asia, Asia why is it now? Why suddenly in the 21st century are China and India the giants of the new world order with power slipping away to the east? What has happened? Where do we look to see the causes of this enormous change? And above all, why the breakdown of trust and respect all around the world and the contempt and questioning of hierarchy, which I'm sure is, is something very much in your minds as well. So that's what I attempt to answer in this um, book. Uh, and uh, whether I succeed or not, well, you will be the judges. I have to confess that in, I am a bit of a, in answering this question, I am a bit of a, of a computer nerd because my answers are these, basically. First, that the microchip and the power of putting a computer on a chip, which began to emerge in the late 70s and 80s, and the, pro and the progressive cascade of technological advances and the Moore's law of doubling the speed of processing every year and all the other laws come. 
technological advance um, and the connectivity and the organizing power, which is given every owner of an iPhone and every owner of a web, every participant of the web, and the contagion of this system. The instant connectivity carries good, good influences and bad across the planet instantaneously. And the transparency that everyone can see what the others are doing, how they are, how unfair it is that they are doing well and we are doing badly, that their country seems to prosper, perhaps we should get up and go there. The triggering, in many cases, of huge movements. The world is on the move in a way that's never been before. All these things, I believe, can be traced back at root to the tiny little microchip. And second, what of course that has done is it empowered mass opinion in a hollow scale never before known in history. I think Karl Marx would be absolutely amazed if he saw where we got to today when he talked about the power of the proletariat and the empowerment of the masses. And of course that is what has happened, but it hasn't produced the united view, the coherence and the new norm that Karl Marx talked about. Of course instead it's produced the whole cacophony of disagreement, furious identity demands, attacks on all uh, government systems, including attacks on our own parliamentary system, a uh, polarization of views, uh, the abandonment of the middle ground, the impossibility in what's today of putting Norse and compromise and moderate views, um, a passionate localism of a kind which is commendable up to a point, but it becomes of the kind which ignores the interests of everyone outside your locality, of course it becomes negative, and direct street action, which I talked about. And generally, uh, a feeling that liberal economics doesn't really explain what is going on in our society anymore, and that, uh, in the bitter words of modern politics, the economy certainly does not work for everyone, and that it leads to concentrations of capital and inequality on a scale which has never before been seen in history. So that's one reason why I think we have, that's one really cause, root cause that we have to look at. The second is really that uh, we're in, or the third, is that we're in a state of gigantic paradox. Because along with all this fragmentation, national stridency, and the feeling that, oh, well, the internet is going to give us power to take on the authorities and challenge the corrupt and so on, along with that, we've seen growing, growing up the giant networks across the planet uh, with huge algorithms dictating what individual people do and what they say and how, they, how their views should be shaped. And in short, we see, to sum up a hell of a bit of what I want to say, we see a huge increase in grassroots power, but huge disappointment that when that power is in the hands of the people, it turns out to be draining away and in the hands instead of um, huge uh, technical platforms and vast uh, organizations which are outside any national control. So, my book just explains why we, we try, I try to put this into two, two revolutions over the last 50 years, which happens at the time I've been in Parliament myself. The first revolution triggered the second. The first revolution was at the end of the two-thirds wave of the 20th century. People began to say that the solutions of the state dominance don't work anymore so that the state cannot run and deliver on a standard that the consumer wants. We saw the end of the uh, USSR, we saw the rise of markets, uh, we saw 
uh, the rise of international financing on the scale that no one knew could happen. That happened in this country under, began with under the government of Ted Heath, went on under the government of Thatcher, the so-called Thatcher Revolution. All that happened in the last few decades of the last century. Then something else happened none of us foresaw. There came the digital revolution, which transformed this deregulation and uh, uh, rise of capitalism into a sort of uncontrollable turbo-boosted boom. I likened it in my book to the uh, sorcerer, to the legend of the sorcerer's apprentice. You remember the apprentice who, when the master went out for the day, um, said, decided to get the broom and the buckets to do all the work, and they did, and he couldn't stop them. And soon the whole place was flooded. And so it was with the deregulation, led up to the most almighty financial crash in 2010, which nearly brought the world's financial system to a total ruin. It distorted markets, it created new kinds of capitalism people don't understand to this day, and it replaced the simple ideologies of left and right with complicated paradoxes where no one could really understand where they stood. The, the isms went out of the window. Uh, the practicalities of democracy itself were began to be questioned. That insidious business of fake news being a means of challenging anything you don't like, however true or untrue it is, began to dominate the scene. So that's really my message, and that's why I think we should go to the roots of what has happened. Um, are there answers for us here in Britain? Yes, I think there is. There are. Uh, Dean Acheson said we lost our empire and not found a role. I think there is a role out there for Britain. It needs articulating with far greater elon than we've had so far. Internally, we have to make our democracy work and deliver quality government, which we're not doing at present. Um, we have to spread and share the new capitalism instead of life to concentrate through devices for wealth creation and bringing to millions of households the security and dignity which some kind of capital provides. We have to decentralize this kingdom. I'm afraid huge constitutional reform is ahead. We're walk, sleepwalking into a gigantic constitutional uh, revolution uh, to cope with a world of localism and um, nationalism within the United Kingdom. We all know the problems arising in Scotland. Um, internationally, we have to operate in a world of new networks, with Western power being challenged by Eastern power. We have the, one of the networks, I think, is starting to be the Commonwealth, which I shall mention. We have to develop new techniques of soft power. We have to join all the new networks. Don't, don't forget NATO and the West. They're going to exist with the new networks, which will sprung up where the real power is residing. That's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, RACP, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, ASEAN Mark II, Comprehensive Pacific Alliance, the new Europe itself, which is going to emerge out of today's EU, and the new America, even NAFTA, it suggested we should join. So that's the colossal agenda. You may say I'm fighting all much too much, but we have entered a new epoch. Everything is connected to everything else. The intellectual giants of the 20th century really <coughs> didn't, didn't prepare us at all for what has happened now and the problems we now face. Um, my book begins by referring to a painting by Turner called The Fighting Temeraire, which was the most popular book painting in Britain. 
and it shows the age of sail, the great old battered sailing ship being turned to the breaker's yard by the age of steam. Well, we're now having the age of, of industrialization of the 20th century being turned to the breaker's yard by the age of a technological revolution, which we're only just beginning. This technology has reached what John Stuart Mill called the inner domain of consciousness. So that's where we have to start if we want to prevent anarchy and provide ordinary governance. There isn't a list of neat solutions, but let us at least understand where we're starting from so that we make some progress. Thank you very much. Right, I'm going to turn uh, to Dr. Catherine Donitz to respond. Uh, so Catherine, over to you. Thank you so much and for such an interesting and thought-provoking talk, Raquel. Um, so in my comments, rather than kind of posing questions, what I thought I would do is focus on the themes and the ideas in the book, um, specifically as they relate to digital. And I'm coming at this from my perspective um, as an academic who studies digital online campaigning, so slightly busy at the moment. Um, but also I've been working in the House of Lords with the Democracy and the Digital Technology Committee that's trying to think about a lot of the same issues that Lord Howe raises. So I'm going to try and think a little bit more about what we mean by digital and how technology has been affecting our lives and the challenges that they pose for government and for the future of democracy, which are the themes that I think for me really resonated within this book. So I think the first point I want to make is this book was really thought-breaking for me because it really talks about the value of using the past as a lens through which to think about the future. And there's a real emphasis on the fact that, you know, I think we have to forget that things today aren't quite as different uh, how they were from in the past. And there's actually very important lessons that we, we can learn from past practices. And too often we're a bit quick to claim that everything is new. And I think that particularly resonated with me because when I first started researching digital technology, I was so excited by the technical plastic and started doing interviews with people who were using these things and then kind of say, well, digital is just a tool. It's a new medium. We shouldn't think of it as this kind of other thing that has a life of its own. We need to recognize the people who are using this tool, the design decisions that go into it. So it's not something that has a life of its own. Um, and for me, that, that makes it quite interesting because it, it prompts us to think about what well, is this something genuinely new? Uh, is the kind of this a latest iteration of a constant process of change that we've seen our society and democracy go through, with digital just being the latest medium that's channeling that change? And I agree with Lord Howe that digital is fundamentally altering the way we're living our lives. Um, and I think it's is causing, is raising all of these questions, which are kind of the newest iterations of questions that we've long grappled with about the kind of democracy that we're trying to create, the way that societies operate and run. So I'm going to try and think about that and about how we might want to react to the rise of digital technology. And I think when I started doing this, I started looking at definitions of digital and actually, you know, was this a useful way of kind of coming at it? But it, it didn't really, really get me very far other than focusing on the fact that, you know, Technology is about change. It's the latest step in a long line of change in how societies evolve. Um, but what I found more useful in thinking about the themes in the book was about this idea of how digital technology has changed our lives. 
And one of the anecdotes in the book um, that is a, a wonderful mix of kind of personal history, but also reflection about these big themes, was the anecdote about how not one member of the cabinet in 1979 had a mobile phone, and that only one early adopter had a car phone, uh, something I'd completely forgotten about. And it prompted me to think that digital technology is something that's now so familiar that we don't even think about it. You know, as an academic researcher, I've never had to go into an archive to retrieve any of the documents that I used. That's all online. And it's changed so quickly. We now have access to information quicker than we ever could have imagined in the past. And the, our voices can be amplified. It's no longer just the mainstream media whose voices are heard. There are these new possibilities. And I think the reason that's so exciting is there's huge democratic potential unleashed. We can have people given power, there can be inclusion within processes, within governments, and there is a very, very optimistic case to tell for digital technology. But one of the things I also find interesting is that that is only half of the story, and I think when digital started to emerge on the scene, we were very optimistic, but more recently we've become pessimistic. We've become aware of the potential of surveillance, of data monopolies, as you highlight within your book, of this feeling of actually not empowerment among the citizens, but powerlessness, a feeling that you can't change anything. Um, it's too overwhelming and too difficult to navigate this digital landscape. Now, I think that whilst digital technology has therefore been embraced very quickly and is a sign of ongoing process, I think what's really important is that we've not really had the chance to step back and do with what Lord Howe starts in this book, to think about how do we actually want digital technology to be used? And what would a kind of good digital society look for? And the three things that Lord Howell focuses on in the book as being affected by digital are relations between the market, the state, and the community. And for me, that's a really useful crux of which to think about the way digital technology is changing, but then also how we want those things to interact and interrelate. So, Lord Howe talked about the rise of business, the emergence of these monopolies that are very, very unaccountable, and they are indeed playing a very important leading role, and they do exercise an awful lot of power. In terms of government, we've seen governments adapt to digital in very, very different ways. Some of them have become very dictatorial in their use of tech with heavy um, surveillance of citizens and significant control. Or other countries have really struggled to adapt. Governments have really not gone embraced digital technology in the way that, that they need to, leading to this sense of powerlessness. And then when it comes to citizens, citizens now do have this access to new tools, new ways of getting their voice heard, and things like Me Too and popular protests have happened and occurred. And it is it, in many ways positives, but there's also real negatives there. It can prompt shadowy activity, things that are difficult to observe, again, these feelings of powerlessness. So digital has unsettled the traditional balance of power. Um, and it's created a lot of questions about what we want the, the relationship between market, state, and community to look like. And this is where I think Lord Howe's book is really interesting. And the, the end of the book really talks about leadership and what that leadership would look like. And I think thinking about that in terms of these three aspects of the state and how we actually want them to interlink is really important. Because at the present, I think in politics we're really unsure about where power lies, who has control, and how established democratic values can be protected and upheld. And these questions are huge and very, very troubling and very difficult to grapple with. 
But I think they're being played out in very specific policy debates. So in my realm, I think they're being played out in digital campaigning and how we regulate truth online. But they're also in these much wider debates about what political leaders can achieve, how much power it's acceptable for the market to have and the companies to have, and how we actually want democracies to run. And one critical response is leadership in thinking about and answering these questions and filling the void that I feel is currently there. We need leaders to set out a vision for how we want technology to be used. And we need leaders to inspire trust in technology and in the, the equitable balance between these forces make of market, state, and community. We need leaders to set a bold agenda about how digital technology should be featuring, even in the face of a feeling of powerlessness. But I also think most importantly and fundamentally, we need leaders to think about power and the kind of democracy that we want and need. So to take just one example, one of the recurring ideas looked at in the book is around participation and mass protest and connectedness. And I think we need to think about, well, actually, how do we want participation to be promoted using digital? Because there are very different options here. And I think too often we don't actually talk about these fundamental values that we want to promote. And it is something that you do. And I think it's very rare to see, actually, what is that vision of democracy that we want? So in participation, I think the default for many of us is that we want to promote citizen participation. We want people to be involved in government. We want them to feel that they can exercise power over companies in the market. And if that's the case, then leaders should be outlining a vision that proactively prescribes uh, mechanisms by which people can participate and be empowered using digital in these three different spheres, you know, within their own communities, to stand up to companies and to uh, be active citizens, but also to be able to contribute to government. In that kind of context, I think we need to acknowledge that there are currently inequalities in digital technology and access to it. And then we also need to invest significantly in digital literacy, digital education, not just amongst young people, but amongst all ages, because digital is a relatively recent innovation. It's something we forget. But if we want to sign up to this vision of a democracy in which participation is an active part, then I think leaders and governments can actually play a very active role in designing institutions and processes to bring that vision around. But there is an alternative here, and I think this is one that, as Democrats, we often don't like to acknowledge, but there is significant data showing that many people do not want to, do not want to participate in politics. The patterns of engagement are changing, and many people prefer what's been called a monitorial democracy, where we're more passive and we only intervene at certain times. And if that's the vision of democracy that we're now accepting. It offers a very different vision of digital technology and how society should change. It suggests that maybe we don't want to invest in processes to give people power and to democratize, but maybe we need to think about how we actually create confidence in the system and give people confidence that companies are being held to account and that good decision-making is occurring. And part of that for me is about identifying clear principles that will govern how digital is allowed to be used in society. And I think politicians have an incredibly powerful role to play here, and it is an area where despite feeling powerless, there is a place to take action. And a part of that is about making proper sanctions to hold companies to account and trying to exercise powers within people's control so that this balance between these different actors can be restated. So while Lewis Howell argues that politicians see their power eroded by digital, and I, I by no means disagree with that point, 
And he also argues that there are fundamental changes in the relationship between market, state, and society. The repost that I want to make is that this doesn't mean that these actors are powerless. It means that rather we need to think about how we want these actors to relate in the ideal society that we want to promote. It means we need to think about these democratic values and to try and take action to promote them. And by no means am I saying that I imagine that politicians can fix anything. I think this is, I would not want to be a politician today, I think the challenge of adapting and changing within this digital environment are immense. But I nevertheless think that they can play a really vital role in offering leadership here. And I think Lord Howe offers the basis on which to really start and advance that conversation within this book. Thank you, Catherine. I'm going to ask Marnie now to give her response. Thank you, Lord Howell, for this fascinating read, and for Cumberland Lodge for organizing this important and very timely discussion tonight. As I read through this book in, over the past month in preparation for this debate today, it struck me how different, yet also so very similar, Lord Howell's thoughts as well as my own are on the very changing nature of democracy, citizenship, political participation are within this rise of digitalization. I am not from the UK, as might be evident from my accent, nor have I, as of yet, uh, fulfilled any of the 62 positions that Lord Howell has <laughs> throughout his astounding career, which we can definitely applaud him for that. But I do also recognize the new openness and fluidity that has contributed to an unprecedented and even dangerous volatility in global affairs. The world is undoubtedly moving in a different direction from the one that he experienced during his time in Parliament, particularly under Thatcher's government throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. Reading this book particularly encouraged me to reflect on the significant changes that I have noticed at the globe, of the global scale uh, throughout my own lifetime. While I am a bit younger than many of the people in this room, and thus I did not experience the revolutionary introduction of the word processor and later the computer, the way that technology has advanced so drastically within my own lifetime and in effect become entrenched in our daily lives has been equally groundbreaking as surprising. I grew up in an age when desktop computers were just transitioning to laptops, yet youth today as young as primary school age are now pairing iPhones and posting about themselves on Instagram. Everyone and their dog now seems to have a Facebook account, <laughs> and it appears almost impossible to get certain jobs, particularly those within academia, without having LinkedIn, Twitter, and several blog posts on your own personal website. It is thus undeniable that we are living in a new age of digitalization. As people are more active on social media than ever before, especially in the lead up to elections, new forms of political e-participation are on the rise. Voters also continue to be influenced by the echo chambers of social media, wherein their friends on platforms such as Facebook post and share things in line with their own political views. Thus, rather than engaging with people of all political beliefs, we are repeatedly bombarded with, message, with messages sorry, that reinforce our own opinions. This age of hyper-connectivity has therefore empowered populism as never before. In addition to influencing voters, though, Digitalization has been used by, for, and against national leaders and candidates running for public office. The recent Canadian election demonstrates this. Thanks to new media and technology, old posts and photos can easily be resurrected in a new time and place in order to spoil someone's campaign. 
The election of Donald Trump additionally points to the new role of technology in politics, particularly how increased communication with the electorate through daily tweets puts leaders in closer touch than ever before, or at least in a perceived way. Similar examples can also be found in other parts of the world, such as in Ukraine, where a TV star slash comedian recently won the country's presidential election with 73% of the popular vote. As such, we must ask ourselves, how should we respond to and manage this rapid digitalization? In an attempt to answer this question, Lord Howell's book queries whether democracy, quote, can be saved by advances in the very technologies that now seem to abuse, distort, and undermine it. These questions are critical, as they encourage us to reflect on the role of democracy in the modern day. Although the book reveals that the fundamental assumption during Thatcher's era was that democracies with parliaments, free and fair elections, party systems, and a strong rule of law would flourish, one-party tyrannies are on the rise as are illiberal democracies, as can be seen in Eastern Europe today. The fact that autocracies could and would thrive might never have been predicted, but a quick glance to the continent to our east demonstrates what was not forecasted. Alternative forms of government can address the social needs of its citizens and lead to rapid development and economic growth. China and Singapore are strong examples here. Though the book proposes that this new Asian dominance has stimulated a fundamental shift in British minds and Western thinking more generally, I would like to push this point further to say that change is the only constant in our world today. Political and economic power has shifted drastically within the last century. Old power that was originally possessed by dominant European countries, including by Britain, eventually gave way to the US and Russia during the Cold War period and has since uh, been passed to the BRICS and other rising economies. Giant monopolies and multinational corporations who were born out of this information revolution, such as Google and Apple, have also gained power and are now much larger and even more influential than some of the, some of the world's countries, economically if also not politically. In this way, institutions of the 20th century, including those of the Bretton Woods system, the UN and the EU, are now struggling to connect to a wider and more informed public, begging the question of the role of global governance in the modern day. In addition, and as Lord Howell recently mentioned, civil society and grassroots organizations have risen and are growing in their ability to influence change. Citizens around the world continue to take to the streets, expressing the desire for things to be different. Recent examples include demonstrations in Hong Kong, as well as climate change and Brexit marches here in London. With the use of social media, the organization and coordination of these efforts is now incredibly streamlined, making these events more visible and hence more effective on a larger scale. These developments clearly demonstrate that the power to influence change is no longer solely centralized in cabinet, with elected officials, or even government more generally, but also lies with ordinary citizens, particularly with youth. Thus, in returning to Lord Howell's question about whether democracy can be saved by technology, I contend that technology will never be able to save democracy as we've known it in the past, as technological advancements have already changed the very nature of democracy in the present. The Westminster model of representative government may have once offered what the book refers to as the gold standard in democratic systems. But the 20th century assumption that Western thought is the best and only way forward is outdated. New and evolving networks are spidering their way around the world, 
connecting people like ever before, and imposing new agendas. Thus, we have reached a point wherein we need to reconsider what democracy is and how it looks in the 21st century. With this, I'm not suggesting that liberal democracy is bad, nor that autocracies or authoritarian regimes should be the preferred form of government, but rather the rapidly changing world offers us a chance to reflect on what has worked, what isn't working, and what needs to be changed moving forward. To ensure stability in this technologically advancing and post-Brexit world, the book proposes strengthening Britain's pre-established networks, particularly the Commonwealth, as Lord Howe mentioned earlier. As a citizen of a non-British Commonwealth country, from Canada, it's not evident already, <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced that the Commonwealth alone will be able to address the new challenges in this transforming international system. Stronger political ties and increased uh, international trade and exchange will certainly prove beneficial for Britain, especially in an economic sense. But what does this bring to the countries that Lord Howell suggests are already some of the, quote, fastest growing middle income consumer markets of all times? The UK is understandably the most married to the idea of the Commonwealth, yet the same support is not necessarily felt throughout the rest of the network. I have met master's students and PhD candidates from Commonwealth countries living here at Good Enough College who did not know what the network was prior to beginning their studies in London. <coughs> Sentiments also continue to rise in Commonwealth countries about abolishing connections with the network, or with the monarch, sorry. And in addition, the UK's immigration policies continue to prove difficult for Commonwealth citizens, particularly when securing work and study visas, a fact that I myself and many students in this room right now can attest to. So these examples demonstrate that the Commonwealth is not necessarily perceived in the same way in the UK as it is in the member countries. With this, I'm not suggesting that the Commonwealth is not relevant in the modern day, but that much work is needed to determine what the role of this network is in the 21st century, what it will be, and with tonight's theme, uh, what is the role of technology in shaping the Commonwealth into the future. Perhaps the first step to navigating the quickly evolving world is to not only consider the Commonwealth network though, but also the other ties that connect people across time and space, particularly those within the digital space. We have seen the ways that social media can push forward political issues, stretching beyond state boundaries, such as climate change, by simply making people more aware. Digitalization can also offer more information and could prove beneficial in increasing political participation, such as voter turnout through the use of e-voting. In this way, new technology can be used as a tool to educate about politics, as well as to ensure greater transparency and the accountability of governments worldwide. But as Lord Howell's book reminds, the new ambition that has come with advancements in information and communicative technologies has been matched with envy and dispute. Though the world may generate approximately 2.5 quintillion bytes of data per day, an amount which I can't even fathom, we, as humanity, are remarkably less settled and more troubled in spirit. Most of us are better off economically, richer in circumstance, and far more connected than ever before, but we are also lonelier, restless, and introspective. In this way, digitalization has brought us closer in ways never before thought possible, both physically and virtually, whilst paradoxically encouraging a competitive individualism that has pushed us all further apart. We must thus remember 
That while technology may be able to help us become more informed citizens, it cannot necessarily make citizens become more engaged. After serving as an international observer during three elections in Ukraine, I can attest to the fact that politics, and especially the electoral process, is not driven by, by uh, technology as much as by regular people who want change. In Japan, as Lord Howell identified, an obligation exists on the part of each citizen towards each other. And in China, Confucian concepts, the family, its ancestors, its children, remain key cultural principles. Hence, digitalization can definitely aid society, but it cannot replace the role of citizens within it. The technological advancements that we have seen have come about because of citizens, and thus we must remember that we are driving the digital age. It is not driving us. As uncertainty remains around the changing nature of citizenship and political participation, I must conclude with my own questions that I felt were left unanswered in the book and to which I hope tonight the discussion will shed some light. In this globalizing world, quickly escaping the prism of past politics, where are we going? Who will benefit and who will lose from the changes that are still to come? And finally, wherever we are going, how will we know when we're there? Thank you. Well, we've had three very stimulating and interesting uh, presentations and responses to uh, David's <coughs> book. Um, now it's really over to you, and I hope it will provoke good discussion, challenges, and of course you can ask questions and make statements. We have about 45 minutes, so can you make sure that your statements we make them are not so long? And as and when you speak, can you please identify yourself, please? There's a hand there, but we did a back, yes. 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 Good, thank you, everyone. A very, very stimulating uh, discussion so far. Um, I am on, a board, on the board of Reporters Without Borders, and I'm actually on my way to Paris this weekend to meet with Shireen Abadi and Kandra Dar to talk about freedom of the press and freedom of expression, so this is very interesting for me. But I'm also a PhD student in English and a writer, so I was fascinated by Lord Howell's statement about the death of narrative and the need for new stories. Um, so I've observed with the protests that are going on internationally that you mentioned um, in Chile, in um, Baghdad, in Beirut, in many places, the young people are actually going back to old stories and old narratives. In Chile, they're singing the songs of Victor Jara. In Iraq, uh, they are chanting young protesters' poems by al-Jawahari, who was a mid-century communist nationalist poet. So the young generation, which, as you point out, has this um, access to social media, uh, which can be manifested for good or bad. I mean, we don't have to list all those examples. Um, they seem to be actually going back to, to old narratives. So I wanted to ask you about that. And, and also, um, would you not argue, I know you talked about the danger of the, the protests that are going on globally and the violence, but uh, in terms of, for instance, Iraq and Lebanon, um, there is an actual narrative, a national narrative that is transcending sectarianism, which would seem to be positive rather than negative. So I'd like to get your comments on those. Thank you. I'll take a couple more before I ask the panelists to respond. Who's next? Oh, yes, you want to take the video. 
Hi, my name is Cora, and I'm a master's student at LSE studying media and communication governance. And I appreciate what Dr. Janet pointed out about a, a pessimistic view of the internet and an optimistic view. I think we all start from a really optimistic slate, and the more we understand the infrastructure, the fragmentation, we do adopt a more pessimistic view. I think um, one thing we should touch on more is the data manipulation by the big tech companies and how that affects elections. Uh, particularly, uh, is if politicians are able to um, target very specific audiences on the internet, then that contradicts sending out a perhaps public message. So it decreases the accountability they have um, because they're targeting specific audiences and their message is more fragmented. Um, so that affects the legitimacy of elections, free and fair elections. Um, and I'm curious to know what y'all think about that. Okay. Anybody else? If not, I'll ask that. Oh, yeah, sorry, the lady over there, yes, it's the third question. Hi, I'm uh, Susan Morgan, I'm a freelance consultant. Um, and I've worked in and around the tech industry for many years. Um, and I think I'm, I'm always wary about giving the tech industry too much power in terms of it's all new and you know we've never faced anything like this before. Um, my sense is that's not the case at all. Um, I think that um, the former US um, ambassador Christopher Mayer talked about the internet as being an accelerant, which I thought was a really good description. Um, but I think that's that's what it does. And my question is um, actually about the extent to which it's really about the underlying issues in society. So the internet provides the accelerant for the expression of disaffection, irritation, sort of greater transparency. But it's actually the underlying issues around people's economic needs being met, around um, the visibility of corruption in different countries around the world. It's not actually about the technology changing things, it's about fundamental questions in society that haven't been addressed um, and you know frankly i think a lot of it goes back to the deregulation that we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years Thanks. right then do you want to comment on the question of right. the Gosh, uh, and, and any other comments Summaries of what I've had to say in my book, which I thought was superb and really the book hardly deserves such an excellent and accurate statements. But let me just take the questions um, in turn, or the main theme of the questions. Um, the, the protests all around the world, and you mentioned Lebanon at the end, and they're all different. Uh, the issues are all different. Lebanon is a country I know very well, and they've got a unique and immensely difficult political balance, uh, and I think the latest protests really were straightforward against uh, bad, bad utilities, inadequate electricity, all that sort of thing. The, um, the Gilets Jeunes in Paris was another story which had actually, funnily enough, an energy relationship to it, um, when um, it was all to do with uh, fuel hikes, which Monsieur Macron imposed in order to uh, Convert, um, achieve lower carbon emissions. Um, the BBC were utterly flummoxed by all that. They said, This is amazing. In a thousand towns across France, they're all putting out barriers, and there's nobody in charge. 
it's not it's a, we've got a new kind of digital kind of protest well actually not new at all some of us have been pointing out that this is the way things were going ever since the proud bridge and the breakdown of the Berlin Wall uh, 20 or 30 years ago 30 years ago but uh, anyway that's what the BBC discovered um, so I think and this really covers the, the third question as well it's not that these things are new there are always been all sorts of potential uh, inflammable issues which can soar up and have done in British history particularly we've had the Gordon riots we've had the Chartists we've had the riots in the, uh, uh, the early many centuries ago the mob has always been there the difference the real difference I would insist uh, despite what was said in the skepticism which is perfectly justified in the third question is that it's all been amplified and empowered on a scale which we've never before seen in history. The 95% uh, of the adults in this country are on the way. Uh, there are three and three quarter billion people on the worldwide internet and web every morning. 800 million Chinamen open their webs, uh, webs uh, their iPads every morning. You may say, well, a lot of them are into gambling and so on. Probably they are. But of course, a lot of Wall Street's into gambling as well. A lot of the cities into gambling. That's what they're doing. They're moving of capital around on a scale far beyond the capacity of the human mind. Frequency trading is operating at a hundred thousand times the speed of the human mind. These are these are new features. These are the uh, the issues. These are the changes, the technology changes, which really have amplified and enlarged. Uh, the issues that were always there. There were always were people wanting to migrate from uh, areas of starvation, war, and misery to richer pastures elsewhere. But now, uh, incredibly, many of them can see pictures of exactly what it's like. They can see exaggerations of what it's like. They can be told they'll get a nice house if they move north into Europe. They'll be told it's all lands of uh, milk and honey, and they can see pictures of it. This triggers movements and actions on a scale we've never before seen in history, particularly the movement of peoples and the violence and the, the, uh, the anger and the polarization. These are new features, so I do stick by that. Um, and the underlying issues were, all, were always there but are being amplified. As to elections, um, we've just had a debate in the Lords on um, uh, some of you may notice we're going to a, a general election. In fact, you're all going to notice it before we're finished. Uh, and we're probably going to have more than enough of it. Um, but uh, Lord Putnam, who was chairman of, of the All Committee, the brilliant man, uh, was making the observation that people are getting very uneasy about the way these elections work. Um, are we being influenced by algorithms we don't know about? What happens if we try and control Facebook and uh, and Yahoo and Amazon and so on, and Google in the West, are we then just going to find Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba arrive from China and take everything over? These, these are huge questions which we've got to face because otherwise we'll just walk, sleepwalk into further, deeper and deeper quagmire of problems. So there we are. I, I defend my proposition that there really is a new element we're having to deal with. And I think both the other speakers have put it even better than I can.
I think, would you like to comment on any of the questions? I'll just uh, say something on the second one because it's what I think about most of the time at the moment. Um, I think the point you raise is so important because companies do have a huge role in shaping what we see. And I think whereas we were, we're quite um, able to kind of, we're, we're quite um, amenable to the use of algorithms uh, in the commercial practice. You know, it, it is quite good to be targeted with commercial adverts, which products you're actually interested in. I think that we have ceded so much power, which when you put it in the democratic context is deeply, deeply troubling. There are so many questions that are raised by the practices that we're now seeing played out and being used this very moment within our elections around targeting, uh, the complete lack of transparency. Like as someone who researches this, it's almost impossible to actually follow and, and find data about what is even going on because of the lack of transparency with these companies. Um, and I think it, this kind of le links to the, the third question as well, which is, this is why I think that leadership is so vital and why we need to regulate into this area and that the state needs to have a very clear understanding of what is and isn't acceptable. Because I think a lot of the things that are happening just aren't acceptable and violate the democratic norms that we profess to uphold, and yet we're not intervening to actively challenge them. And I think that this has been a complete failure of government to regulate in this area recently. Thank you. Do you want to comment on anything? No, I can't answer anything. Good. Any more questions from the floor? Yes, so from there, and then that comes to you, Chris. Hello, uh, I'm George Muir. Uh, I'm a retired railway. Uh, what I, I think a good way to look at this problem is to think what might, what, it's to try to imagine what will the world, might the world look like in eight or a hundred years time. We've all seen uh, uh, sci-fi films, you know, and, and imagined with vast tall buildings and spaceships floating around like that. Well, that might not happen. But the world in a hundred years time, when many of you will be alive, will be very, very, very different from what it is now. Uh, the people's uh, coming in here might not be people. There might well be robots here. In this, this is a hundred years' time, not in thirty years' time, but a hundred years' time. It might be very sick. What we there I find quite helpful is to try to think. Imagine the world in hundred years' time, and then how are we going to get from now to there? It's not going to be an easy path. One of the ways that I think is useful to help, a, a, a good way to think about it, was in fact, I think, brought out quite well by Marnie, which is to think about power structures. Because whatever the world is in 100 years' time is going to be dominated by the powerful, almost by definition. So how does the present technology and internet aid power structures? And it's when thinking about democracy, it's worth observing. Democracy is not common now because it is virtuous. Its virtue is irrelevant. Democracy is quite common now because it is powerful. So if democracy stops it, so, and hence the question, what, how are the power structures going to evolve in the next 100 years? Thank you. Thank you very much. There's another question from there. Hi, everyone. I'm Keith, um, doing a public policy and administration masters at the LSE. Um, just piggybacking on a few questions, including the gentleman's question about power, as well as what Dr. Dominic mentioned. It's okay. okay. As well as what Dr. Dominic mentioned about alternative models 
such as people preferring a more passive democracy. Now, like what Howard said, I, met, I do come from Singapore, so this particularly resonates with me a little bit about how maybe uh, there's a desire to, for better leadership to curate points better. But I guess my, where my question is coming from is, it seems that this whole talk about digitalization is kind of kicking the problem down the road, that the real problem at the heart of this issue is what was mentioned earlier about the deficit of trust in the West. So um, sh my question, I guess, to all on the panel is, should we actually make, or rather the West itself, should it actually encourage and take and foster more responsibility from its um, electorate for more democratic participation? I mean, yes, you, you have countries like Singapore where voting is mandatory, but other um, so-called liberal countries such as Australia have made it mandatory. Um, and how, how ethical would it be to do that? How much should we actually use digitalization as a tool for that? And um, I guess another point coming from a more media studies background would be um, how comfortable are we with, if we, do, if we do not trust our political leaders, how, how comfortable and how ethical would it be to create thought leaders within the community itself? I mean, we've all seen individuals such as um, the American broadcaster Walter Cronkite. He, he was well loved back in the past. How comfortable are we with empowering such an individual to be able to be the voice of the people in a sense to do the curation for us if, we, if the West itself still refuses to trust in its own political leaderships, those that have been democratically elected so-called by the people themselves? <coughs> Thank you. Gentlemen, over there at the back. I'd like to follow up uh, the earlier question about power structures uh, and how we build on them, and to ask you how, after the First and Second World War, the terrible suffering and chaos they brought, we created a number of very fine institutions the UN, the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and many other regional organizations. Do you think um, we can create now or use these institutions that we built up after the, uh, in the, in the second part of the 20th century to provide more effective regulation and uh, uh, distribution of uh, the benefits of the internet so that they benefit the whole of society rather than um, special interest groups within them such as political parties, businesses, sex addicts and various others. Can we, do, do you think we can build on our present structure or do we need new institutions and regulators for the world that's to come? Good. Well, I'll set up group three questions. Mariana, come to you. Do you want to respond to any of those first? Uh, sure, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll keep my comments brief, but I found a link between um, the two of you, specifically about the role of ethics. I think that's something that we'll have to consider moving forward with any um, advances in technology, whether um, social media or any use, like you said, potential for robots to come in here. I don't think that's really far off when we're thinking about the future, specifically um, in the military, for example, the ways that technology has already advanced. Um, but then, like you mentioned over here, my friend here mentioned, it is about the ethics. When When is technology going too far, what, what is our aim? And I think that that's something, I'm not sure if we can answer right now, but I think it's something that we need to keep in mind as we do advance um, technology in whichever direction we do choose to go in. Catherine, do you want to come in before I go to Lord Um, Just a very quick point about your question about trust um, and your, your question about whether we should force participation. Personally, 
I'm not convinced that's the way to go because I think forcing participation doesn't necessarily solve the deficit of trust. Uh, if anything, it might actually uh, contribute to increasing distrust um, by being forced to do something and therefore feeling some sense of complicity. Um, but I think your second suggestion is more interesting to me. So there's been some very interesting research that looks at the effect of um, public attitudes and proximity and shows that you know the, the more proximate you are to a leader, the more likely you are to trust them because there's the humanity and the interaction. You, can, you see them as a person rather than a figurehead. So I think that's a very interesting idea and um, certainly I'd be more in favour of the second than the first. <laughs> Thank you. David. A um, hundred years from now, uh, here's just a thought that rather tickled my sense of humour. I think the foreign minister of Latvia the other day circulated a tweet which went viral, uh, which said the year is um, uh, 2,119, and uh, the ancient ceremony of a British prime minister coming to Brussels to, <laughs> to ask for an extension of Brexit. <laughs> this will attract a lot of tourists. Uh, the origins of this ceremony are almost lost in history. Uh, it is a very familiar scene which gives us great comfort. So, so that's probably where we could be in a hundred years' time. <laughs> um, but more seriously, um, uh, how this question of power, answering both the first and the third question, um, and the, the structure of power. I just was in Geneva the other day. Um, now, I know this is, as Mao Zedong said when he visited Switzerland, it's easy to polish a small diamond. Uh, and Switzerland is a very stable place. Um, I asked my audience, um, <coughs> could someone tell me the, the name of your uh, prime minister and president in Switzerland? Hardly anybody knew the name. I think a lot of discussion went on. Somebody thought it was a lady, somebody else thought it was something else. Eventually they did come up, somebody knew who their president was. Now what, 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 what that brought home to me was that this is an amazingly decentralized society in which the cantons and the communes and the districts have enormous powers, vastly greater detailed powers in everything to do with schooling, taxation, employment laws, roads, transport and so on than in our very centralized country we have here. Um, and this, this does something very valuable. What, what's a, the great, the most familiar panic cry in my world? Everyone's out of touch. Everyone accusing everybody else of out of touch. The politicians are out of touch. The parliament's out of touch. Uh, the business is out of touch. The people in one area, the north is out of touch. The south is out of touch. This is the cry that you'll hear 10 times a day. How do we reverse that and make people or encourage people, give people the opportunity to be in touch or feel they're having direct, more direct control over their surroundings and their lives and their livelihoods and their children, education, housing, all the rest. Um, and you can't just simply say, well, the answer is a tremendous turn this into a country of cantons, the, you know, the, the Republic of Yorkshire or whatever it is, or giving the existing nations within our nation uh, so much power that beyond what I think Scotland is going to try and take away anyway. But generally, it's clear to me that in the age of this sort of technology and communication, people do want, have got the opportunity and can be given the opportunity to pursue their, um, be in touch with their local issues and causes much more than we thought possible in the past. It, it doesn't always work. <coughs> local models go, go local groups go, go out of 
uh, leave the, the main path and go into difficulty and so on. Central government has to intervene. But broadly speaking, I think the answer is m much, much more decentralization. Here's an even more uh, revolutionary thought. We all think that the referendum was a rotten idea on the huge constitutional issue of in or out of the European Union, uh, a complex issue. But of course, in Switzerland, while they the major constitutional issues are dealt with centrally. Practically everything else is dealt with by endless referendums. People are forever voting and involving themselves in local issues. And that, that, does have a, that does have an effect to making people feel they're more in touch. Um, applied, just turning from the domestic scene to the third question, the international scene. Yes, we have the, the post-war organizations which were designed to ensure that the ghastly uh, mobilized hate-filled populism of the early part of the 20th century wasn't allowed to lead to the breakdown of all international relations. You all remember the history indeed, the League of Nations collapsing, uh, Nazi Germany defying all, driven by whipped up coordinated populism, because that's what it was, um, of the uh, Nazi leaders. Uh, leading to the complete breakdown of the rules-based order and um, the same happening with the other fascist and communist regimes. How do we, the, the, we set up the, the Bretton Woods institutions, we set up NATO, we set up the Council of Europe and um, these were designed to meet that. Now what now? Um, 70 and 80 years later uh, with again populism popping up and manifesting itself in foreign policy. What is the slogan of America First? America First is, is a populist slogan. Uh, any country, we want our interests first, and to hell with the foreigners and so on. Are, these are populist sentiments. And if you let them come into the international order, the first thing that goes um, to the bottom of the class is the rules-based order, and the agreement to observe international disciplines and patterns of behavior to maintain peace and prevent the violent assertions of everyone's narrow nationalist interests. So how do we deal with that? I think first of all we have to, as I've tried to touch on in this book, can't cover everything, one has to see where the new power structures are and the new levels of cooperation. And while I think um, things, uh, military organizations like NATO will continue, although they're in big trouble, um, and um, while the European Union, if it, if it uh, modernizes itself, although it's a tw 20th century structure, will continue, <coughs> although it's under enormous strains at the moment. Um, the, we have to reckon with the new international structures that are just growing up of their own accord. Networks do have their own agenda. Networks never sleep, networks happen. Whether governments may agree at the top, bureaucracies agree or not, the network system of the world is racing forward driven by connectivity and technology. And producing, I gave a great list of international organizations that are there now, which weren't there 30 years ago, including the TPP, which everyone says Britain should join, um, the RECP, the, uh, <coughs> the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is China's answer to these problems. They want the help new set of organizations which are not so Western, and which they have more say, understandable and various other. All these things I think we have to engage in. 
And just finally, the, the second question, which I, to me is the, the key one of all, about how do we, uh, alternative models, alternative models, how do, we, uh, how do we get over the dilemma that the people who are good at democracy and campaigning and uh, shouting the odds and so on and getting votes aren't necessarily the best people at running <coughs> complicated, very, very technical, very, very complex government today, or delivering quality government. So what do you do? Do uh, you, you, we've got a sort of compromise in this country that we elect people, which we call politicians, they're accountable, they're ministers and so on, um, and um, they're not doing very well. They're not delivering the quality government which the world wants. They're not delivering the sort of quality government which the whole of rising Asia wants, uh, that China wants, the people of Vietnam want, that their people expect to be um, to be deliverable uh, for the most simple and basic things like good housing, security, job security, wages, good education for your children, and proper health support and security generally, and a good lifestyle. So there is a there is a, there's a problem there. How does Singapore do it? That I really need to sort of take advice from the speaker and others. Somehow one needs to combine the ability to deliver high-quality government with the accountability which a democracy demands. And I don't think we, at the moment, this formula is really working very well in the old democracies. So um, the issue is a question rather than an answer, is how to, um, how to combine the, the technical, technocratic requirements of modern government with the democratic accountability and how do you get trust and respect back into a system that can deliver these things? And um, to what degree do we draw on Asian philosophy? The bit I'm very keen on being quite an old man is respect for age and, um, uh, and uh, family and um, the, the hierarchy of trust and respect that goes with that. Um, maybe we, if we had a little more of that. <coughs> or the beautiful harmony that the Japanese now talk about in their new imperial era, combined with amazing resilience in Japan against hideous national disasters and tsunamis and earthquakes and typhoons and all the rest. If we could get a bit more of those qualities into our politics, we might be very, a better fist of things. Thank you. Any more questions from the floor? Yes, Lady here and over there. Yes, you start first. Thank you. I'm, I'm Kristen O'Donnell. I'm a PhD student at the University of Brighton and a Cumberland Lodge scholar. Um, so I'm very interested in the idea of the 100-year-on Brexit ritual, because my research looks at the centenary commemorations of the First World War and the way that participatory art um, has manifest online and the sort of narratives we're telling ourselves there. So I'm wondering, what I've found with my own research is that a militarized narrative can give a certain veneer of unity, but underlying it, there's always political disunity. So I'm wondering what sort of narratives can we tell ourselves, um, particularly as I've lived in the UK quite some time, so I think of myself um, kind of British. So, so what sort of narratives can Britain tell itself that don't rely on a militarized version of the past? Okay. Somebody at the back there, yes. Hello. Um, I'm Jasmine. I'm studying for an MSc in International Relations at the LSC on the LSE and Peking University Double Program. Um, I've lived in China for about half my life, and when I first moved there, YouTube had only just been blocked. 
um, and now it's a totally different digital culture. Um, and it's not just the system, it's not just um, the kind of political facility that comes with this thing, it's this whole new generation, in my view, um, of a digital culture that is so far removed from anything that we see here in the West. Um, and you know, all the companies that go along with it, you mentioned Tencent, Alibaba. Um, what I'm kind of interested in is a maybe second question for now, but how do you see these kinds of digital cultures conflicting in the kind of political assumptions that people have about what role digital does play here in the Western democracy and what role it does and doesn't play really in politics? My experiences in China, but perhaps in other countries you may have a better idea than me as well, um, and how that might come into conflict in things like the TPP, ASEAN, uh, SEO, and all the rest of it. One more question, and I'm afraid that would have to be the last one. It's the last three questions I'm taking. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Tanya, and I'm studying at uh, Mary doing a postgraduate program in uh, law there in dispute resolution. And uh, my question kind of connects to yours, I think. Um, or it's, maybe it's more of a question for advice to, and to your on your opinions on this because I'm wondering or I'm struggling to find my personal role in all of this process. We've been talking about how this has been changing over the last year. We've been talking about the influence in elections, and I think this is something not to be underestimated because, of course, since I am um, a very a young person, I don't have uh, a lot of years of experience to look back to when I decide who I want to vote for. So I kind of think for every election and decide on the facts that are these topics. And um, I'm wondering what is it that I am that I can do to make our situation better in this and not to be influenced by this because the first thing that comes to my mind is just to try to shield myself from this influence. But then I think, well this is not the right way to go and somehow I have to help uh, control this and uh, it's just a very concrete matter for me to um, on what to yeah what to do and um, I'm not asking for specifically a different sort of democracy I, I like the one that we have and I want to preserve this because my family for instance lives in Switzerland and I have some experience with the referendums that they have there and I have made the experience that they're far on um, most elections they have about 20% um, or even less of the of the people even taking part in the referendum so that's not really what I'm looking for just how to preserve the kind of democracy we have. That's my question. Okay. Well, what was the question? Well, the question really was relating to the last one. You know, it, it, it was about voting. Okay. Right. So, who do you want to? Would you like to start? Right, sorry. Um, uh, Sorry. Yes, uh, the, military side. Uh, the first one was on, on the narrative, the role, what is it? For, um, let's just think about our own kingdom, the country we're in now, the United Kingdom. Um, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an obvious adage, inner health equals outer influence. If we can get our, in, in our society in a healthier state than it clearly is now, less divided, less angry, less abusive, less feeling that people are left out, left behind and so on, then we will be in a position to talk to the outer world and to help both we'll do two things in the outer world. One, safeguard our own interests, um, which are often out the frontiers of those interests are far away, the other side of the world. 
and two, less selfishly and, in, and less inward looking, um, promote and, and assist those parts of the world which do need help and assistance. There are a lot of very small, very beleaguered countries, many frightened by climate change, um, many others where their politics have gone badly wrong, many others where democracy hardly exists and so on. We do, this is a decent country and we should have a, an outward mission as well. Um, so how do we fulfill that? I think it is by engaging in the networks. I didn't, someone, um, I think it was suggested that quite rightly that the Commonwealth Network alone can't do it. But face the fact that it is the biggest network on earth, it is the mother of all networks, it is 2.4 billion people connecting up with each other now in a way that they never did before and have, having a whole range of common interests. People talk about common values, that's one aspect, but the sheer connectivity of the whole system from, from first school up through all the entire schooling and educational university system, through the law, through all the professions, is absolutely staggering. The, um, from just around the corner in Tavistock Square, uh, the Association of Commonwealth Universities <coughs> daily communicates with 530 universities across the planet. There's nothing like that elsewhere in the world. Over in Vancouver, the Commonwealth of Learning uh, communicates with 40 million students for online distance learning every day. There's nothing like that just elsewhere in the planet. The professions, all the lawyers get together, the magistrates, the judges, the Commonwealth, the scientists get together, the veterinary research, and um, uh, uh, the bioscientists and so on all get together. There is a, um, a huge area which sort of automatically connects them. There's a lady called uh, Baroness Lane Fox, who was brilliant, who was an advisor to the government on digital matters. <coughs> and she recounts how she went to a primary school in Northumberland and told, began rather patronising, said, well, you won't have heard of the Commonwealth, and of course, you won't know much about computers. And the little boy gets up and says, oh, yes, we do. We outsource our homework every morning to Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> so that rather took her in a, but that's not quite what she, she meant. <laughs> I shouldn't necessarily support that. But um, here, is, here are linkages happening, which are giving, giving us a role. Uh, Dean Asherson said we'd lost an airplane not found a role. I think there is a fantastic role both for looking after our interests and contributing to world peace and stability and growth uh, and human rights of all kinds, uh, which the Commonwealth Network does provide. Other networks must be joined as well, but certainly that to me is the big one. And the more that we can, in this very changed world, put that at the center of our foreign policy rather than regard it as marginal, while we sort of hang on to the US despite all the troubles do our best with the UN, which itself in need of huge reform, and mutter about what our relations with Europe should and shouldn't be. The more we put those in their box and say, look, this is by good luck, not by good work, because we more or less neglected the Commonwealth for 40 years, but by, by luck and destiny, we have this fantastic network, and we should work with it in every conceivable way, governmental and non-governmental, the better and healthier. <laughs> it will be for our society. So that's my, that's my narrative, it's uh, the role. <coughs> As to elections every five years through our democracy, under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which itself is a very controversial thing, which I think will shortly be repealed, I suspect it will. Um, or elections to your local government, well, 
the British have been hopeless at local government. We take it up 28 to 33% turnout, not taken seriously. Why? Because people don't feel local government has the powers. They're all centralized. They're all taken away by remote, faceless inspectors from the Department of Environment who come along and contradict local feelings and ignore them. So that's all got to stop. That's all got to end. We've got to decentralize, as I said earlier, much more power, and then it really is worth voting. And maybe we should follow the Swiss and have more small, um, on local issue, referenda um, to uh, ensure that people not only are, feel they're in touch, but actually are effectively in touch with their vote and their view really counts. So a lot more democracy is my answer, but it's got to be democracy that works not democracy dictated by sinister algorithms telling us how to vote because these algorithms apparently know what we all had for breakfast and where we're going and it talk too much about us and therefore target us in a rather unpleasant way. It's not that kind of democracy, a genuine open one. No fake news, minimum interference from those sinister things that come up on the screen and uh, a lot more clear relationship between us and the people in office who are shaping the world around us. Thank you. Martin, would you like to say some final words? This is your chance to say whatever you feel you need to say and respond to the question if you so wish. Um, sure, I'll just keep it short. Um, I really liked the question that you posed um, about how do we meander through this new age of digitization? <coughs> And I think Lord Howell just brought up some questions um, just now in his response also about really thinking about what the past has taught us um, and moving forward into the future, but also looking, like my friend back there had mentioned, about what other countries are doing. And maybe rather than comparing the West versus Asia, for example, but really learning from each other about the ways that we can meander through this digital age. I think the first step, like you mentioned, is really about educating ourselves and about questioning um, where we are at um, and what we see in social media, um, wanting to know more and really asking what our role is as citizens, I think. Um, we do know that we're not escaping this digital age. Um, so I think really educating ourselves and thinking how we can move forward through it as active and engaged citizens, I think, is our first step. Good. Question. I'll just make two short points. Um, those questions were fantastic. I think the point about political cultures that you made is so important and digital cultures being very different and we often assume that we all have the same experience online but it's not just done um, through different countries, structures and, and uh, policies. We all assume that different countries around the world all see the same Facebook but Facebook looks very different in different places and it's governed according to different laws in different places. So we need to acknowledge these diversities within the digital framework and actually work as kind of, I think as countries to develop our own sense of how we want these things to work and then push back because that kind of joined up global governmental response won't be able to respond to the market because we're not dealing with a unified thing in the way that we often think we are. So I think it's a really interesting point. And um, I'll just finish with um, something on Tanya's comment about what can we actually do? I think what Maya said is that we do have um, actions that we can take as individuals. So on Facebook, for example, if you start following a more diverse range of views, then the algorithm does actually acknowledge that you want different sources of views. So it will start feeding you things. This is what we think, how, this is how we think it works. So actually exposing yourself to different things, you know, trying to read different news sources and, and, and bring that in. But I think that 
we need to not put this all on citizens. Like there's only so much that we as individuals can do to react to these. There has to be a big um, state level response to this. Otherwise, I don't think um, we're going to see significant change. Thank you very much. Well, I think sadly that brings us to the end of today's discussion. But I do want to say that this has been a very rich and stimulating uh, an hour and a half and my profound thanks to the three panelists you know, for getting us off to a good start and my thanks to the audience for very, very interesting questions. Uh, I would not attempt to summarise all the discussion we've had, but to say that this has been very much in the spirit of Cumberland Lodge, you know, where we've actually begun the debate to explore this decision in a calm manner. <coughs> And I'm hoping that we've been looking at some of these questions and taking them forward because, as I said, it's the start of our own dimension in looking at the opportunities that are presented. And I was listening to all of you and thinking of what the former president of Czech Republic, Harold, was asked a question. He was asked, are you pessimistic or optimistic? He said, I'm neither, I'm hopeful. <coughs> and I think this particular discussion makes me very hopeful. Uh, and, and I said, we very much need to develop the work on the question of leadership, and obviously through that sort of leadership and discussion among groups like this, to be able to influence, you know, as you say, the state, you know, to actually respond. So I think there are some constructive things that we can do. And I think this is where the partnership with Woodenough College is a good one, because I do believe that given the scale of change, collaboration between institutions, you know, to make a difference is going to be very important. So my profound thanks to Woodenough College, your staff, and the staff that come from the lodge, and to the panelists you know, for the discussion. And this is not the end of it. You can continue discussions next door over uh, a drink. Uh, but thank you very, very much indeed.